You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is supported by Fidelity Investments. Together, we're here to empower, educate, and encourage women to start talking about money. Discover more at fidelity.com slash it's time. Her Money comes to you through PRX. I am Jean Chatsky, and welcome to Her Money. So for those of you who are homeowners, I'm sure that you've had that experience where the place that you live, the place that you love, every so often starts to feel like it's a bit of a money pit. And that's how I have been feeling the past week or so. I've had this issue where the air conditioning in my house didn't seem to be working, which was problematic because it's been about 85, 90 degrees in our area. And I called the AC folks who... I've had on speed dial for about as long as I've owned the house. They came over and they told me it wasn't actually an air conditioning issue. It was a high ceiling issue, believe it or not. The temperatures just got so hot, the hot air was rising. And when you took the temperature, which our AC guy did at the top of my son's bedroom and compared it to the temperature on the floor of my son's bedroom, there was about a 10 degree difference. I mean, it was just astonishing. And so... This very nice AC guy who could have said to me, well, we better put in a second unit, instead said to me, you need a ceiling fan or an attic fan. And so today, when I left to come to the studio, I left the contractor, who I have on speed dial, installing an attic fan that I hope will solve the problem. But it's just one of those things that seems like it keeps on going and If you're not as fortunate as I am to have both the trusty AC guy and the contractor on speed dial, sometimes you don't know where to turn. And if you've ever given a look to the Federal Trade Commission's annual look at consumer complaints, you know that home improvement scams are often very, very high on the list, which is why it's so great that we've got Angie Hicks in the studio with us today. Angie, welcome. Thanks, Jean. It's great to be here. It is really great. Great to have you. And I, I'm sure that as soon as I say, you know, Angie from Angie's List, everybody will know exactly who <laughs> I'm talking about. Angie's List is the site where you can go to check out businesses and read reviews dedicated to helping consumers find the best service providers for their homes with reviews and offers and information in 700 different categories. And Over 3 million people a year, is that right, come to Angie's List to shop their options? Right. Wow. (laughs) That's big. Well, I'm glad to have you here. Thank you. To help us sort it all out. You really started this company with just a list, didn't you? I did, and it was pre-internet day. So we were in the review business before the industry even really existed. So we were a call-in service and a little monthly newsletter that I would print up and hand out to the to the members. And, you know, so they would call in and say, I need a plumber, or I need a kitchen remodeler, and I would match them with companies that other members had told me about. What year was that? It was 1995. And so, and it was local, correct? It was. So we started in Columbus, Ohio, and then expanded uh, city by city. And now, how many different listings do you have? 
Well, I mean, we're in, you know, we're in every major metro area in the U.S. So, you know, we've got uh, ratings on, we've got 10 million reviews on the site. So it's just about anything you can find. And, you know, it's, what's great, it's a lot of the companies are just small mom and pop companies. I mean, that's the hardest ones to, to really get good information about. It's like, okay, it's the, it's the one guy and he's got a truck and he's a great handyman, but do you know it? Do you know it when you, when he pulls up to your house? How, how are you sure, right? When you first started this business, did you have any inkling that you were going to be an entrepreneur on the scale that you're an entrepreneur today? No. no. I mean, I was 22. I was 22 when I started. I started right out of college. Uh, and was it your job or was this it, just sort of was, something you It did was for my fun? job. So I, my co-founder, Bill, um, I had interned with him when I was in college and he was having home repair woes. And he was familiar with a, he'd used a company in Indianapolis that did what Angie's List does. It started in the, in the mid seventies. And he started looking around and realized there was nothing like it elsewhere. And he was living in Ohio at the time. So he convinced me, uh, that he'd raise some money. I think we raised $50,000 for the first year. He's like, I'll, I'll raise enough money to get us through the first year for you to, to work if you'll come and commit to working. And, you know, I was 22, naive, didn't really know what I was getting into, right? And off I went. <laughs> That's fantastic. I know you took a leave of absence from your company to go back and get an MBA yeah. at one point. What was going on and why did you make that decision and was it worth it? Yeah, it was it was an interesting time. I, you know, I wasn't one of those people that had kind of had a life plan that I'm going to work for three years. I don't, I don't even know that I, if you would have asked me when I graduated from college if I was going to get a, a master's degree. I don't even think I would have said yes. You know, for me, it was, you know, it kind of just happened to be the right time. So we were about three years into the business and, you know, I'd been exposed to just a lot of things, you know, but it was also really hard. Like I was like, I had no experience managing people. I didn't like, you know, I was not an extrovert and I was going door to door. I mean, I was just like kind of drinking from the fire hose. And in many ways, I was I was really burnt out. And, you know, the business was, we were in about four markets and there was an opportunity. We were like, hey, it's time to bring in a management team. So we, were, we started to search for a CEO, which ended up being my co-founder. He ended up joining the business at that time. And he, it was a perfect time for me to go to grad school. So I actually decided, I think, like in August, applied in October. Yeah, I mean, I was literally, yeah. I had completely ill-prepared, hadn't taken the GMAT, hadn't done anything. It was a great experience. Was, you know, for me, it was a chance to recharge. It was a great chance to synthesize so many things that I'd been exposed to and really, you know, kind of step up my my professional experience. And how have you grown with the company as the company has grown? Yeah. It's fun to watch, you know, kind of how the company's evolving. When I came back from business school, I think we had like 70, we had 16 employees when I came back from business school, 16. And now? We have 1,800 and so, you know, I had to go learn from being an individual contributor to being a manager to focusing on strategy. I mean, like kind of you run the gamut. And how do you keep people inspired who work with you? You know, and I'm not a charismatic leader. I had to learn. I had to learn my own kind of ways. I am an introvert. But introverts can be charismatic. Yeah, they but just I'm just get I, their energy. From they get a their energy source. different. But I'm like, I am just like, I would love to just sit and do spreadsheets. And I'm a very quiet person. So I had to come up with ways to interact. So like one of the things I introduced was I do office hours once a week uh -huh. where any employee can come. I dedicate an hour a week and it's like a 15 minute slot. And it's a chance for me to connect with employees across the organization 
whether it's talking about their career path, whether it's talking about something they're really excited about that we're doing or something that, frankly, they're like, hey, we can do better here. Um, but it's a great way to connect and a great way to uh, keep in touch with the front line and really understand where the business is. They must love that. It's fun. It's fun. And it's just as much fun for me. I look forward to that hour every week probably as much as they do. Do you ever feel or have you ever felt so vulnerable because it's your name, even when you were not the official leader? I certainly take it very personally. You know, I mean, like, it's about me, too. You know, so I, I, it's different that way. But I also, you know, I never worked anywhere else. So I don't know. Yeah, you know, I don't know whether I would just be as passionate somewhere else as I am here. But I want to make sure that we hold true to our values, that we are doing what we say we're going to do. And I think that's important for me. And it's important for the business. Do you think that people relate to the reviews because they're reviews from real people? I mean, is that sort of what where does the big amount of trust come from? It was interesting, even in the early days, you know, people, because they joined and became members, they felt an obligation. It was almost like I would run into people and they'd say, oh, I owe you a review. I mean, it it was one of those like, why do people, you know, why were people paying you to be members yet felt like they owed you the content, right? And it always was. And I think it was because they felt like they were part, they were part of a club. You know, like you give your review on your, on your ceiling fan guy and I'll give my review on my plumbing. And, and that's how, that's how it all works because it's all dependent on the consumer content. It's kind of like an organic co-op. Yes, in that way, absolutely. right? Like everybody yeah, like has to given, work. You all but, have to give a little. We yeah. all have to give a little because that's what makes it great because that's the standard in which, you know, the companies were listed because, you know, because consumers gave them reviews and their rating was because they gave reviews. And the companies became very passionate about it, too, because it was a great way for them to really magnify their word of mouth. So all of this basis on membership is now changing. You just announced yeah. that Angie's List is now open and available and free. Yeah. Why did you do this? The company has evolved so many times in 20 some years here, right? So when we first started, there wasn't even an internet. You know, we were, we thought we were a magazine. You know, we thought of ourselves that way. So we continually look to meet the consumer demand. And as we were looking at the millennials becoming homeowners and just how they like to buy things, you know, we, we knew they probably weren't going to, to come and buy just a membership for content. You know, there were a lot of other things that we were going to have in our memberships in the higher tiers that would be interesting to them at the appropriate time. But we we really knew we needed to open up the content side of things. So that's what we're doing, but still have great premium offers uh, in our paid silver and gold memberships that I have a feeling, you know, what will happen is as time's appropriate, like, hey, I'm getting ready to put in a new air conditioner. Maybe I want that service quality guarantee. Because I want to make sure it's it's done really well. I mean, when we look at and we talk to consumers, the two things that they worry about when they hire home improvement contractors is that they have a job well, they get a job well done, mm-hmm. obviously, and they pay a fair price. We were talking before we started the show about your recent bathroom renovation. Yeah. And you said something interesting. You said you hired a guy who cost about a third less than the other bids, yeah. I guess, that you received. That always makes me nervous. When you're choosing a contractor, how do you do it? Yeah. I mean, well, obviously, I always start by checking their reviews, but really just talking to them and what they're going to do. So it's really important to understand exactly what process they're going to go through, what's included in their quote, um, and also making sure that you feel comfortable with the contractor, especially with a home improvement, like a remodel job. I think people oftentimes underestimate the importance of being able to talk to your contractor and the fact that they're going to be, you know, to some extent living with you. 
for a period of time. And I think one of the things that causes projects to go over on budget and things like that is when you're just not good at communicating with your contractor. So don't underestimate those communication skills. You should always make sure your budget is at least 10% less than what you actually can spend on your project, for example, Mm -hmm. because you never know what's going to happen. And you want to make sure that you're talking to them every day because, you know, time hurts the budget. Are you of the impression that you shouldn't pay all the money um, before the, the job is completely no, done? No. How do you parcel it out? So you should think about it. Like, you know, obviously on a bigger project, you're going to be paying for supplies potentially right out of the gate. And then it'll probably be paid out over time if it's a longer project as at certain completion points. You know, like, hey, when we get to this point, you know, a third of it's due, for example, in this point. But I always hold back, uh, you know, about 10 percent to make sure you can kind of walk through the punch list, mm-hmm. you know, kind of the when they say it's done, do you think it's done, to make sure you're going to cover those last things that need finished up. When we talk about reviews on the Internet, I mean, you mentioned you started before the Internet even existed yeah. and that, that it was largely printed. Now everybody's a critic. Mm-hmm. Now you can go on Angie's List, but you can also go on Yelp and you can go on Amazon yeah. and peer reviews are a thing. And they're a thing that consumers pay attention to when it comes to buying everything, whether it's a a contractor or a A book. Yeah, Yeah. or a book. Right. Or a trash compactor. If anybody still buys trash compactors, I don't think so. I think everybody composts. But (laughs) um, so are there any ways in which reviews can cost consumers? And how do you know when a review is an honest review. I know right. there are a lot of scam reviews out there. Yeah, and I think that's that's a really important thing. I mean, you can read reviews about everything, but which ones can you trust? Right. It comes down to the question, really. And I always think when they're too good, I can't trust them. Yeah. I always tell people, like, you know, you learn more from one negative review than you do from a whole slew of positives. I tell companies that, like, no one is perfect. You're going to get a complaint. It's really about how you handle it and mm-hmm. how you respond. So, you know, Angie's List, as I said, started pre-internet days. So we, you know, our role models were journalists. Every story has a source. So we never considered taking anonymous reviews. You know, it was like, you have to be, you know, you have to be accountable for what you say because this is too important of a decision that people are basing on your content. So be accountable to what you say. Uh, you know, be honest. Share your honest feedback. The contractor gets to respond on our our side as well. And, you know, I always remind them, like, that's just a point for you to shine. Like, because, you know, everyone kind of knows what happens when it goes well. But how do you handle it when it doesn't go well? What kind of person are you going to be? And I often find that, you know, I, I enjoy seeing those complaints now and then because it just makes you look human. And I think because, you, you know, if you, the reviews read like they're, they sound the same, everyone, I would question. Do you have any sort of telltale signs that you look for to figure out if a review is true or if it's fake? We, so, we, you know, obviously we, we go through a verification process. So obviously the accountability of having the identity of the consumer, the company has a chance to see the review and actually see who gave the review. Uh, and then we have a system, we have an algorithm it'll run through and set a pretty low threshold to kind of trip those. And then we have a team of people that actually read the reviews that get tripped. And, you know, it's like it's amazing. I, I kind of joke around. I think those people wanted to be investigators. Like they know who your cousins are. Oh, boy. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, so I mean, they're just, um, you know, great at kind of weeding out that because that's what's really important is making sure that we have a good system for, you know, making sure that that's the best information possible. I always, when I'm searching reviews, in many cases, you have the opportunity to only look at the three stars or only the four stars mm-hmm. or only the five stars. And I tend to go right for the middle ones because yeah. I feel like those are the people who are giving me the truly honest assessment. Right, right. And the other thing that you can do at our site as well is you can actually see what type of reviewer the consumer is. We'll actually show you their histogram for how they review. Which I think is also important to look at. So you can kind of say like, oh, they tend to not like anything, anything or they love everything. <laughs> right. You you kind of like I, I enjoy seeing, you know, reviews from people that have, you know, kind of a mix. I want to take just a second to tell everybody that Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. Fidelity is focused on helping women like us take charge of our financial lives. We all deserve to live the lives that we've worked so hard for and have the homes that we've worked so hard for. So visit Fidelity.com slash it's time you'll find more conversations like this one with Angie Hicks, information about how to manage your money during life's biggest events and most challenging times, whether you're getting married, divorced, or starting a new career. And again, that is fidelity.com slash it's time. We are happy to be back with Angie Hicks of Angie's List. When a project goes really wrong, Mm -hmm. what's the consumer supposed to do? I always encourage, you know, first things first, Express how you feel, you know, but don't be angry. Like, I think sometimes we get angry and people stop listening. So, you know, try to keep a level head. And if you're not, you know, kind of work your way up the company. But if you're not, then getting you the result you want and be clear on what the consequences are. Are you going to stop being a customer? Are you going, you know, I mean, like, be clear. Don't just rant to rant. Right. It's you know? like having a conversation with a teenager, right? right. If you, like, if, if you, you do this, I'm going to do this. Well, yeah. <laughs> and if you throw out, if you do this, then I'm going to do this and then you don't, don't follow do it, through. Then it's useless. Then your you're credibility just, shot. Exactly. Exactly. So really, I mean, that's over, you know, over the last 20 years, I've, looked at many situations where things probably haven't gone perfectly, it a lot of times comes down to communication. I mean, that's one of the reasons we have our complaint resolution service, which basically is us. We go, the consumer says, hey, I'm having trouble with this contractor. We say, hey, great, consumer, let's see how we can help. Write down exactly what you think would be a, a resolution that you'd be happy with. You know, part of it is just like, what will you be happy with? Right. If there's a scratch on the floor... Like, I think it might be unreasonable for you to think they're going to put a whole new floor in. Like, you know, what is actually, you know, kind of reasonable expectation? And then we'll go back to the contractor. Sometimes just having someone that's not emotionally involved in the scenario helps that. And that, you know, that's part of the service that we offer. But I think it really comes down to, you know, kind of if you can think about it at the beginning, document as much as possible. You know, I know it sounds laborious to sit there and kind of write, get a good contract, um, and then make sure that you're in close communication. When things aren't right, say it right away. Aside from communication, are there mistakes that you see homeowners making again and again and again? I think sometimes they're just, uh, they forget to kind of write down what they want. You know, contractors aren't mind readers. Write down exactly what your expectations are. Uh, you know, kind of a good foundation can make or break a, a project. When you're evaluating a contract, mm-hmm. are there early termination clauses or other clauses that you need to be specifically aware of before you sign on the dotted line? You should absolutely read the contract. And remember that the contract is negotiable. I think sometimes people think the contract's the contract. Feel free to try to negotiate things that are important to you. 
an early termination clause is a great thing to be thinking about. How the payment terms are, you know, don't be afraid. I mean, you know, negotiate on the price. Like, you know, I, I tell people all the time, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? Is they're going to say no, you know, but they might say yes. Right. And if you don't ask, <laughs> you'll never know. Exactly. You'll never know. So be sure that you read through the entire thing and make sure that you ask for the things that are important to you. And sometimes, particularly after a big natural disaster, mm-hmm. you get the door knockers. You get yeah. people with the with the signs slapped on their vans right. coming on coming onto your property, knocking on your house yeah. and saying, we can do this work. What do you have to know? Say no. Always? Say no. Think about that scenario. So a storm just went through your neighborhood. Um, Companies are busy. Like, they're not probably going door to door. They're busy. Don't divorce yourselves from your good reasoning from your normal hiring process just because a storm went through. Uh, You know, this happened to me. I was, you know, a hailstorm went through my neighborhood 10 years ago, and, you know, a contractor came in, came through and knocked on the door. My husband was napping in the other room, and my husband is typically not concerned that I can't take care of myself in situations. <laughs> yes, I, I would I would hope so. <laughs> and, you know, the contractor is like, you know, I, I can help you with your roof. And the guy got kind of aggressive, and he, like, shoved his business card through the screen, you know, the slot in the door, you know, and I, my, it was enough that my husband woke up. Wow. And I was just like, yeah, you just, you just say no. You know, it's like... And a deal today should be a deal tomorrow. Well, and sometimes it can be cost-effective to bring somebody you trust in from somewhere else. I actually, right. we had Hurricane Sandy. At, yeah. It hit our house at the Jersey Shore. Right. And I could not get somebody right. in for much too long yes. because they were all very, very, very busy. busy and right. we had mold to take care of. And we brought a contractor we knew from a different town. But that's it, that's that you knew. Yeah. And it was knew. actually cheaper because right. he wasn't raising his prices like all of the contractors in the neighborhood. Right. That's that's exactly right. So, you know, it's one thing like, hey, if you want to go and, you know, work with your neighbor and get a a group deal on something, but don't just take someone going door to door. Yeah. We did that when we bought generators. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> For the neighborhood. Because right. it was the power was just going out in right. many to yeah. many Mulch houses is a great example. Do time. not order your mulch by yourself. Everybody get together. Order their mulch together. <laughs> I've always been taken by the fact that much like we tell people to check references Mm -hmm. when they're hiring a new employee and to make sure that the right protections are in place as far as insurance is going, people don't do that. Yeah, the guy comes and knocks on my door and says, hey, I'll plow your driveway. And you're like, you don't really think much of it because you're like, oh, he's just plowing my driveway. What can go wrong? Well, what if he runs into your garage door? If he doesn't have insurance... You're paying for the garage door to be fixed. So essentially, in every case where you hire somebody in your home, you need insurance or they need to be bonded? They should have a general liability insurance. And if they have employees, they should have workers' comp insurance. You know, So sometimes people don't think about that. You know, like, hey, the employee that came to clean the gutters, if he falls off the ladder on your property and they don't have workers' comp insurance, that's on your property. When we look at people's love for their homes, yeah. we know, and this we're in a wave of this right now, of people spending a lot of money on right various home improvements, where do you get the biggest bang for the buck? Well, inevitably, you always, you know, your kitchens and your bathrooms are some of your best improvement projects. Those have the best return on investment continually. But make sure that you're keeping up with the Joneses and you're not exceeding the Joneses. So what I mean is, like, what's in your neighborhood? Like, if your neighborhood is full of, you know, places with two bathrooms, Mm -hmm. you're probably not going to get a great ROI by putting in a third one. 
So, you know, make sure that you're not, you know, pricing your house out of the neighborhood. You don't want to have the most expensive house in the neighborhood. You know, if people aren't putting granite countertops in, don't put granite countertops in. Unless you're going to live there forever and it's always been your dream and you're viewing it as that's the that return that you're getting is your personal enjoyment. But otherwise, you want to make sure you're kind of staying priced comparable. How long does that renovation cycle last? So I moved into my house 10 years ago. I redid a couple of bathrooms and the kitchen. And now it's 10 years later. And I look at my walls, which kind of have the colors yeah, from 2005, like, and they've, they've got mm-hmm. that, they're sort of yellows yeah. and greens, and, like, and I like they're this? not grays and whites, right. which is what I see <laughs> in House Beautiful. My so, house is beige, so I totally get where you're coming from. <laughs> how, so how long, what's the length of time for which you get the payoff for yeah, doing so this So I think work? what's important about that is thinking about where to put the trendy things and where not to. I think sometimes people are like, oh, I'm going to put really trendy cabinets in or things like that. Instead, do a trendy backsplash. Super inexpensive to swap that out if it doesn't, you know, if it doesn't last. So think about like, hey, you want to keep a more traditional cabinet. Those are expensive. But think about, you know, the cheaper things that you can do. You know, paint, obviously. Paint is, is cheap. Paint is easy. Like, that's almost, you know, for some of us, it can even be a DIY project. So, you know, think about the things that are going to be there for the long haul. Try to keep them as, as basic, kind of neutral, that are going to kind of be a style that will last. Awesome advice. <laughs> do you ever think there might be another chapter for you somewhere else doing something else? I don't know. I mean, like, my view, I always evaluate opportunity by... You know, the people that I work with and whether I'm learning and being challenged and whether I'm having fun. I guess those are my those are my criteria in life, I and guess. Check, check, check right yeah. now. And 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 I tell employees all the time, I'm like, if you're not having fun at your job, and I'm not saying like every day. Like no one has fun every day. Right. If but they did you wouldn't have to get exactly. paid. <laughs> but I'm like, you know, you spend way too many hours at work. You should go do something that you have fun with. Like that's that's the opportunity. I, you know, you spend more of your awake hours at work than you do at home with your family. Sad but true. Sad but true. So make sure that it's fun. All right. Angie Hicks, thank you so much. Thanks for coming in the studio. Thank you. With pleasure. It's time for us to turn to answering some of your questions. They come in to us on Twitter, on Facebook, at jeanchatsky.com. And Kelly Hultgren has joined me in the studio. She brings questions as she does every week. Hey, Kelly. Hi, Jean. And I do have some questions. Our first one is from Terry. She tweeted us saying, Jean, I'd love to hear about married slash unmarried couples entering retirement. Is it worth it to get married for financial reasons? Winky face emoji. Oh, winky face emoji. I think, um, you know, it's really interesting. There, There's a trend now in older folks not getting married, mm-hmm. um, and that's for, for tax purposes. I mean, the marriage penalty is actually a real thing. In general, being married can make your estate planning easier. Um, if you're married and you pass away, everything that you own essentially passes to your spouse and you don't have to do anything in order for that to happen. But you can solve that problem with a will. You can solve that problem by putting the proper documents in place to take care of it by naming um, the the person in your life, your significant other, as the beneficiary of IRAs and other retirement accounts. And by the way, that has to be done separately from the will because those designations override anything that happens to be in your will. Worth it to get married for financial reasons? I don't really think so. 
I think it's a very, you know, personal choice. And if you want that person to be able to inherit, to be treated with a certain modicum of respect, should you be in the hospital, for example, I, I tend to think even though you can give your your healthcare proxy to anybody that you want, spouses do get afforded a little bit more respect. They just tend to be listened to a little bit more. And that, by the way, is is just anecdotal information that I've sort of gathered through my life. I would say uh, no, but I'm open to a debate on that. And it's an interesting question. And I think maybe we should look into bringing on a guest who can talk about that. Because I'm just, I feel like, and Terry, I'm sorry about this. We will do some homework for you. But I, I feel like I, I don't know all that much about it, particularly because it's such a, a tax-related question. Mm-hmm. But I would like to explore. Yeah, and so you, we Terry. will do that. Since working for you, this is the first time I've received this question for someone asking it to you. So it's a really good one. Thank you, Terry. Yeah. And our next question is from Whitley on Facebook. She says, hi, Jean. I love the Her Money podcast and your weekly newsletter. Oh, you know, people, we haven't really talked about the newsletter much. For anybody who's listening who doesn't get the weekly newsletter, we put out a free weekly newsletter. It's called This Week in Your Wallet. Mm -hmm. And it's essentially just a digest of the important things that happen that week that affect your pocketbook. And so if you want to sign up, you can just do it at jeanchatsky.com and and we'll put you on the list. But uh, people find it useful. So um, thanks for saying that, Whitley. They do. And most importantly, though, it's your take on the financial news, too. Which yeah. I, people are coming for. So and you can find that at jeanchatsky.com. And she continues her question. I have a question for you about my 401k. I've been out of college and working full time for two years now, but I have contributed at least my employer match and now more to my 401k from the beginning. I'm wondering if it might be a good idea to change my 401k to Roth so that I would pay taxes on it now while I'm in a lower tax bracket. You know, a number of 401k providers have added a Roth 401k to their menu. And as Whitley said in her question, it it works kind of like a Roth IRA in that you put in money on which you've already paid taxes and then you don't have to pay taxes when you withdraw the money. And it is particularly a good idea for younger people. Whitley, you may also want to look at splitting the difference so that in retirement you've got some money that is Roth money and some money that is traditional money. The other thing to keep in mind is the tax treatment on your matching dollars. Those matching dollars will not be treated in the same way as your Roth. When you get to retirement, you'll have to pay income taxes on the matching dollars that you received when you pull the money out. Um, you know, that's just a, a complication, but but I think it's a good idea. For the same reason that I think a Roth IRA is a good idea for for young people and for the same reason that the Roth IRA has become so, so popular. Whitley, thanks so much. And um, Kelly, thank you. I hope everybody keeps their questions coming. Thanks, Jean. Sure. And we're going to turn the corner once again to this week's Thrive segment. On this week's Thrive segment... Is your home an investment? Well, my guest, Mitch Rochelle, who is a partner at PwC and currently serves as the firm's New York Regional Business Development Leader. That is a mouthful, Mitch. It's a big title. Big That's title. A big, you are important. Too much. You're it, an important man. No, it blows the 140-character rule on Twitter, <laughs> I think. 
Mitch was one of the founders of PwC's real estate advisory practice and leads the real estate research team today. And that's exactly why we brought him in to talk real estate. Thrilled to be here. Thank you for being here. So you don't believe that your home is an investment. If it's not an investment, what is it? It's it's something you get utility out of. Um, I think real estate brokers often talk to first-time homebuyers about the investment characteristics of a home, but I really don't think it's an investment. I also don't think an engagement ring is an investment um, because sometimes you buy them and never see them again. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) In my case, but it's not something that you're intending to sell. So if you buy an engagement ring, for example, for whatever the formula is, how many months, they say Whatever. two months, your sa- two but, months of but your salary. Not, right, but you're not selling it at the. There's no residual value to it. You're not selling it, and if you do, it's really for hardship reasons. So I, I sort of think similarly about a home, although you do sell homes at the end, and they do have residual values. But I don't think of it as something that you're looking at the value of on a daily or weekly basis. And I think some of the sites out there that will help you value your home have caused people to focus more on the investment value of it because you can get an appraisal in minutes online. But it's really something that you raise your family in, you get utility out of. So think of it as the that place as opposed to an investment. That's really always the way I viewed it. So if you are buying a home, and I want to talk about both sides of the equation, what's the smart way to go about this purchase? What's the smart way to make this purchase? And when should you not even be buying at all? So let's start with you figuring out first what you need. So I think there's two budgets. And Gene, you've been talking about budgets forever and probably taught me how to do that. But the fact of the matter is, is what you can afford, which is budgetary, how much can you afford on a monthly basis? And that's principal, it's interest, and it's all the other attendant costs to owning a home. The other thing is, what do you really need? And you sort of have to budget space. Mm-hmm. Um, we're starting a family, if the house is fine for us today, but if our family gets bigger, oops, the house doesn't fit anymore. So you have to think about that. Um, people often don't think beyond the next whatever cycle in their life is. And oftentimes you have to realize that real estate itself is cyclical. So think about all of the empty nesters who found themselves being empty nesters intended to sell their house, but then the financial crisis hit and they couldn't sell their house because they needed that money out of it, but they didn't need that house anymore. They now had 1,500 square feet more because their kids were now out of the house. So I think you have to sort of budget the period in which you think you're going to own the house and what you think you're going to need. Um, people who buy homes that don't have Children aren't focusing on what the school system is, but they're going to have to care about that. Um, they also don't think about certain tax elements of owning a home. So I think you have to sort of budget utility and budget finance simultaneously and have the right time horizon for those. The time horizon. I, I've heard it's five years, that if you don't plan on being there for five years, you should be renting. Is that you're not you're not agreeing with me? Well, I think the rent buy decision today is more about um, personal balance sheet and down payment than anything else. Um, the the home is as liquid of an asset class today as it was ever in modern history. Uh, the challenge today is because of the way the in the wake of the financial crisis, lending institutions requiring you to have a down payment. That's a novel concept. So people have to aggregate that wealth, and when they do aggregate it. Um, they're actually thinking differently about that capital decision. So we have a lot more people in the rental market than ever before. So the rent versus buy decision is really complicated because it's in many markets, and Atlanta is the market that I like to focus on, it's actually considerably cheaper to buy a home than it is to rent 
apartments typically uh you could probably rent a home for closer to the buying so it's this down payment there's this there's this cost so it's changed gene that five-year rule of thumb it's gotten longer also if you look at the you have to look i think if you're informed you have to look at something longer than five years because you have to take into account that you may not be able to sell it somewhere. I mean, it's, ha it's happened in my own life. I've owned residences that needed to sell for personal reasons, and then I was selling it at the absolutely worst time. There's nothing worse than going to a closing and bringing a check as the uh, seller, right? Yes, no, absolutely nothing worse than that, although I did buy my house, as, as I've told you, in May of 2005, which I believe was the week that the market hit its peak. And I'm convinced that I will never get out of my house what I put into it. I'm, I'm okay with that. Well, I've come to be okay with that because I like my house and I've gotten a lot of enjoyment out of my house and I've sort of come to just think, okay, I'm, I'm enjoying this as a place to live, but you got to be careful. And it just goes back to the investment characteristics. And I'll go back to my engagement ring metaphor. It's not something that you're thinking to sell. And when you do sell it, it ends up being a hardship thing. Here's what's an interesting statistic. Um, and I don't know, because it, it runs against the whole five-year notion, but the typical American who's owned a home in their life took out a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage. And what they did was they accumulated wealth over their lifetime by repaying the loan. So, um, and I use my parents as an example. My parents bought their home for some, you know, relatively small amount of money by today's standards in the 60s. And when they sold it for 20 times more or whatever, my dad and my mom's estate sold it, um, there was a windfall, but there was only a windfall because they had paid off that loan. And so if you buy a home today and um, take out a 15-year fix, let's say, mm -hmm. and you can afford the payment on that and you hold it for the 15 years and it didn't change in value one iota. Think about what you've accumulated in wealth, which is the repayment. So people say taking out a mortgage is crazy because you're just paying rent to the bank. That's fine, but you have a residual value at the end, which is typically the only way that most Americans accumulate wealth. So, right. It's an additional savings account, right. essentially. It's a, a nice, big it's additional savings. It's a tax-subsidized savings account. Well, and... You know, the argument that people make against this, and then we'll talk about selling a house in a sec because I want to get there. But the argument that people make against paying off a mortgage is that interest rates are so low, you can just take the money that you would have put toward that mortgage and you can invest it and you can do better. But I kind of feel like that's the argument that people make against term life insurance, that you'll buy term and invest the difference and nobody invests the difference. So the other thing that... I say three things aren't investments, and one of the things I say is an investment also is life insurance. Okay. <laughs> so I left that out just to uncomplicate it. But I don't think – there's discipline when you're repaying a mortgage. There's discipline because if you fail to repay their consequences, if you fail to put that money in that old Christmas club account or whatever the banks used to have a, a gazillion years ago, there's no consequence. Mm -hmm. right? The bank doesn't come knock on your door and say, hey, you forgot to fund this account. So I think the discipline of knowing that if you don't make those payments, you lose your home is a thing that for, truly forces. And for the time being, the government's your partner in it. So why, you know, so I'm, I'm a big fan of buying homes. I'm a big fan of um, its role in the American dream. I don't think the American dream is dead. I think the reason why people aren't buying homes at the rate that they're not, which means we have the lowest homeownership rate in modern U.S. history, is because people don't have down payments. 
Let's talk about selling. There was an interesting story in the Wall Street Journal that talked about psychology when it comes to buying and selling homes. And it said, when we go to sell our homes, we put on rose-colored glasses. We think because we've lived there and we've imbued it with all of this emotion and we've got the door jam where we've made the marks to to measure how our, our kids have grown, that it has additional value. And that's a big mistake sometimes. Uh, and buyers don't care. Um, no, <laughs> so, so like you've been... Sounds like you were walking Teddy with me and Charlie and Debbie. Like that's my dog and my wife. Uh, um, but the fact that because Debbie and I have this conversation all the time because there's all of these homes in our community that have for sale signs, and she says, "What is our house worth?" Like this is a recurring drumbeat kind of conversation. And first of all, values are determined by willing buyers and willing sellers. Okay, and there's no room for emotion in that equation. And the things that you place value on, like landscaping. And forget about things like the intrinsic value of the fact that you raise wonderful children in that house, which is of no value to the buyers. But all of these things that you've done to personalize the home may not be of any value. Uh, interestingly enough, the best example for that is a pool. Mm-hmm. Okay, Houses with and without pools don't necessarily trade all other things being equal for premiums or discounts because there are buyers of homes who don't want pools. And when they have one, they don't want to pay anything for it because that pool means nothing to them. Okay, the cost of putting in the pool is astronomical, but a house with and without isn't valued differently by the cost of replacing that pool because some people want them and some people don't. So I think especially in a market like we have today where there isn't a whole lot of supply on the market, people are trading houses at what they believe that they're worth and all of these other intangibles don't necessarily have value to them and sellers don't understand that. Speaking of things that sellers don't understand – There's a lot about money that people don't understand. You are a trustee of the PwC Charitable Foundation, and one of your roles in being that trustee is working with me. We have a project that we do together called Your Money, which is a magazine that goes out into the schools on a monthly basis for fourth, fifth, and sixth graders. We touch two million fourth, fifth, and sixth graders every month with a magazine that teaches them about their money. And I am grateful for your support in that, but I want to know why you think it's so important. So it's kind of simple. What's interesting is teachers feel ill-prepared to teach financial literacy to their children uh, in their classrooms. And the reason why they feel ill-prepared is two reasons. One is they may not personally feel comfortable with the subject matter and or they lack the tools to do it. So uh, at PwC, we're committed to financial literacy, and we have had a multi-year, we're in our fifth year of a multi-year commitment to try to tackle the financial literacy, what I'll call crisis in this country. But one of the things we wanted to do through a grant from our foundation was try to create some tools. So we collaborated around the magazine, which is dropped into Time for Kids nine times a year. Um, and what's interesting is, and as we were thinking through it, we realized that how else do you, financial literacy is a, an adult topic, right? Money is an adult topic typically. And maybe teachers don't teach it to kids because it's an adult topic. But how do you teach other adult topics to children, fourth grade through sixth grade, as the case may be, like Zika? How do you deal with that? Well, on a weekly basis, time for kids actually tackles that topic in the classroom. So we decided to take the entry point, the on-ramp into the classroom was somebody who'd been doing it for 20 years in the case of Time for Kids. And it, the, the feedback has been phenomenal from teachers who now feel like they have tools in the classroom that they didn't have. And what's great about it, one of the early sessions we had planning the magazine, uh, the editor-in-chief of Time for Kids said, what do you want? And I said, if you dust one of our 
issues for prints, everybody in the family's fingerprints would be on it when it got back to the classroom. And that's exactly what's happened. Kids take it home. And every kid, if you ask them what they want to talk about in the classroom, money would be the number one thing they want to talk about in the classroom. And if you ask teachers what you want to teach your kids about, money would be the last thing they want to teach them. So we found a tool that for the benefit of 2 million students uh, a school year, bridges that gap. And what we're trying to figure out now with our foundation, honestly, Gene, is how to scale it and, and how, do you, how do you reach more sets of eyeballs? Because when you teach a kid in a classroom that kind of lesson when they're four, I guarantee it sticks with them the rest of their life. And for parents who are listening whose kids don't bring your money or Time for Kids home on a regular basis, you can get it on their website, which is just timeforkids.com slash your money. You'll find all of our issues going back a couple of years. If you Google PwC uh, and Earn Your Future, which is our brand name for our commitment to financial literacy, or Time for Kids, or Eugene, you can find that magazine. Uh, and it's easily downloadable, printable, and um, it literally teaches itself. Thank you for being here. And for the real estate lesson, we'll have you back. I'd love to. Thank you for spending a bit of time with me today. Thank you to Angie Hicks from Angie's List for dropping by the studio and to Mitch Rochelle of PwC for doing the same. I want to thank all of our listeners for sending us questions. Keep them coming. Leave us a review. Leave us your thoughts. Leave us your suggestions. As always, our thanks go to our sponsor, Fidelity. Our music is provided by Track Tribe. Our show comes to you through PRX. We are listening. I'll see you next time. 